All right, well, as we say every Sunday, let's grab our Bibles. We continue our look at the book of Revelation together. And today we come to the seventh church, the seventh and final church, the church of Laodicea. So let's make our way to Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 14. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans writes, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness may not be um, uh, revealed, excuse me, and anoint your eyes with the eye salve that I, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as also I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The church of Laodicea was known, of course, by our text as the lukewarm church. Now, knowing that, we need to know why God called them the lukewarm church. And it wasn't solely because of the spiritual temperature of the church. What had caused the lukewarmness is a problem that is very relevant to us today. The church had become self-reliant, self-dependent. They had become independent of God. And as a result, they became useless. They became uh, just a, a waste to the glory of God and to His kingdom. To the point where we see here that a mention of a lampstand is not given. It is, uh, his state is outside the church looking in. And their wealth has become the object of their power, of their ability. So as we look at the church in Laodicea, there is significant parallel to where I believe we find ourselves today in the church of America. Now, I can't say this of all churches, for all churches around the world do not have the wealth and the prosperity that the churches in America do. And yet, I think it would be easy to convince individuals that the church of America doesn't seem to be nearly as impactful as it could be. The idea of self. At a pastor's conference and talking with some pastors, I was sitting there at the lunch table and we were talking about the sin of idolatry. And of course, to identify what that 
idol is in the life of the individual is, of course, relevant. But to the general populace of the United States of America, I made the argument that I believe that the idol of today is self. And that is directly contrary to the beginning of our Christian faith, which I'll demonstrate in a moment. But as we take a look now at verse 14, again the Lord writing to the church of Laodicea, the angel could either refer to the pastor of that church or an actual angel bringing a message to that church. It's well debated, as we have stated. He identifies himself, that is Jesus, in verse 14. And each and every one of the, uh, the identifications that is given speaks to his personal sovereignty. These things say the amen. The amen. So be it. If you remember the famous movie, The Ten Commandments, the Pharaoh would often say, so let it be written, so let it be done, as you may remember. When we say amen, we say, so be it, let it be done. Jesus is the great I, I am. He is the amen. He is the one that can say and do, and then afterwards say, so be it, because nothing can hinder what God wants to do. He then describes himself as the faithful and true witness. Of course, we remember when we read that, that famous interaction between Jesus and Peter and his disciples, when they asked, oh, just show us the Father. And Jesus said to them in such kindness, I believe, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the perfect representation of God himself. Why? Because Jesus himself was God. And then he says, the beginning of the creation of God. And there's twofold meaning in that. We know that all things were created through Christ. The Bible clearly teaches that, that we are not a product of evolutionary accidents. But we are created in the image of God. And all that is created is created by God. But it also entails what occurred after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul alludes to this in the book of Romans, where at the moment of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a process began. It was the process of the redemption of the world, bringing the world back into the state that it originally was created, where God had said, it is all good. And that process began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that that process is outlined in the, book, in the New Testament, in the Bible, and that we know that Peter tells us that the old things will burn away, and God will make a new heaven and new earth. And as we see through the Scriptures, God will return His creation to that perfect state before sin and death touched it. And you and I are part of that process. We are part of that redemptive work. As the moment you came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, a work began in you. A work of sanctification. Bringing us back into the original state. Now, I hate to say this, but on this side of heaven, we're never going to get there, right? We're never going to be perfect. 
I would be very concerned if someone here at church came up to me and said, oh, Pastor, I want to invite you to my perfect sanctification party. I have been perfected, and I want to celebrate my perfection. And in that perfection, I'm so humble and proud of it. It's not going to happen this side of heaven. We're all works in progress. And that's why God asks us to show grace to one another. Because He knows that He is not finished with us. But we know the moment that we step out of this world and into His presence, we are going to know Him like we are known. And we are going to be in that state of perfection, that mansion that God promised to us in and through Christ. The house that's not built with human hands. The new body that we are all going to occupy to enjoy eternity the way it's meant to be enjoyed. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. I'll never know what hair is like again until that moment. God giveth and God taketh away. But that's what he's saying here. That Jesus Christ is the beginning of new life. As Paul wrote, he says, Know this, that we are all, all things have passed away, all things have become new, for we are new creations in Christ. That's what he is alluding to. And we know that New Testament tells us that all of this is a work of the Holy Spirit in our life through God's Word. That's how sanctification takes place. But if we become an individual governed by self... If we uh, try to perfect what God started in the Spirit through our flesh, we're going to fail mightily. So is the church. Chuck Swindoll, in his beautiful commentary on the book of Revelation, I would encourage you to find a copy and read it for yourself, says that we have moved away from the principles of the early church. In Acts 2.42, they uh, gathered together in fellowship and in the apostles' doctrine and the breaking of bread, etc. You know the passage. Where the new church is governed by sentiments such as this, God helps those who help themselves. Pull yourself together and be more like God. If you want something done right, do it yourself. Believe in yourself. Look out for number one. He went on to say that these things are the new tenets and pillars of the self-reliant, self-centered, self-expressed, self-confident, self-worth, and self-reliance church of America. It's not about us. It's all about Him. If we try to reduce our Christianity into serving ourselves, then we make God nothing more than a divine butler. There for our every need and whim. Oh, God sure blesses His kids. He sure provides for His kids. He provides all those things that we need. He doesn't promise He'll provide everything we want. God's kind of like Walmart. If they don't have it, we don't need it, right? Did I just compare God to Walmart? <laughs> you know, I, I can't even... <laughs> yeah, I mean... Sometimes I just have to take a step back and just say, oh, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> but if we believe that we are going to finish what God has begun in the spirit, in the flesh, we are gravely, gravely 
deceiving ourselves. Notice what he says in verse 15 to the church. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. He says, if you were cold, I could do something about that. If you were hot, I could use you for my glory, but you are neither. In verse 16, so then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I've never seen that verse on a Christian t-shirt. Or on a pair of salt shakers that you see on someone's table when you enter into a Christian home. But this church was repulsive to God. That's what he's indicating here. This church is a church that was useless to him. In fact, we'll see in a moment that he was standing on the outside of it. He wasn't even amongst it. Now, this metaphor, this illustration that he is using here is something that would be absolutely, absolutely familiar to them. You see, the city of Laodicea was an incredibly wealthy city, but there was a problem. The city of Laodicea was built in a very vulnerable area to earthquakes. In fact, now we know through satellite imaging that the city of Laodicea was on a fault line itself. And so several times the city was destroyed due to an earthquake. And once it was destroyed, and then it was, I believe, Emperor Tiberius who stated that he would give the financial resources to the church, uh, to the city of Laodicea to rebuild, only then to have the city several years later destroyed again by an earthquake. However, when that earthquake hit in 61 AD, the, the city was so wealthy because they were the uh, they were the epicenter of economic development. It was like the, uh, the Gentile, uh, or I should say, um, the region of the Gentiles, of, it was their Wall Street, okay? And they had enough riches to rebuild themselves, which of, of course created pride within them. However, though, because of the fault line that they were on, they were lacking one essential component, and that was water. They couldn't drill wells for water there in the area of Laodicea. So they relied on two different sources that were away uh, some ways uh, from them, and the water was brought by aqueducts to them. One was in Hyperpolis, which was a city that had a hot spring, and the other source of water was found in Colossae, the book of Colossians written to that city. And they had spring water, so it was very cold. However, though, when both sources of water traveled through the aqueducts to the city of Laodicea, the cold water became warm, the hot water became warm instead of hot, and they were left with lukewarm water. I mean, they just couldn't fill their pitchers and put it in their refrigerators and in their ice cube makers and so forth. They were inundated with lukewarm water, which was a real stain on the city. Uh, historians tell us that it was a uh, real embarrassment to the population of Laodicea. Uh, and so when Jesus called them lukewarm, 
He's saying, you're an embarrassment to me. Think about that for a minute. Pretty harsh words, right? And why did they find themselves in this tepid spiritual state? Verse 17. Because you say, and of course the implications of those words is this, you have a false perspective of yourself. You don't see yourself truly. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And in that Greek phrase, we find the self-sufficiency of the people of Laodicea that translated into the church of Laodicea. Their wealth propelled their church. It wasn't the Holy Spirit, it was their wealth in their personal lives and in their collective community as Christians. The Holy Spirit was no longer necessary due to the prosperity that they were experiencing. They were able to do what others couldn't do because of the prosperity in which they had. So again, self became self-determined. And what do I mean by that? They were no longer interested in seeing what God wanted to do. They were able to fulfill what they wanted to do. I heard a pastor say something that I never forget. I actually at that time wrote it in my Bible. And as you know me very well, I don't like to defile my Bible. But it was so wise in what he said. We know that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. We know that that love can lead people to do things that they never imagined or thought that they would. But he said that the reason that money is so deceptive and that money is so desired by individuals, including Christians, is because money can give an individual a false sense of sovereignty. I think that's interesting based upon the uh, verse 14 where God introduces himself, Jesus that is, introduces himself as the sovereign God. What self does is remove the sovereignty of God. He is no longer preeminent in one's life as Paul argued in the book of Colossians. We now become self-governing, self-determinant, etc., and we walk according to self rather than according to the Spirit. So they weren't interested in that any longer. And as a result, even though it may have seen that everything was hot happening and booming there at the church, God says, I'm not even part of it. I'll never forget listening to a pastor. A message was given to me by someone in our church years ago. It was during the 2008 financial crisis. Do we all remember that? I think there's another one coming. But during the 2008 financial crisis, he got up before his congregation and said, please understand that during these troublesome times, if the money stops here at the church, the church and the ministry stop. And I said to myself, well, maybe it needs to stop. Because if it's led by the Spirit, then God will provide those things that you need to continue the ministry that He began. It's such a simple thing, childlike faith. I think I read that somewhere. 
A.W. Tozer went on one step farther to say that in the early church, when the church began, if the Holy Spirit was removed, 90% of what the church was doing at that time would cease. He said, unfortunately, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, only 10% would cease. We become incredibly self-reliant, self-determinate here in America because of the prosperity. Instead of using that prosperity for the further glory of God, we have used it now as a substitute for the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting to me that before God dealt with various nations throughout the Old Testament, did you ever notice that the manner in which He dealt with them was by dismantling their gods. Of course, the ten plagues of Egypt are a perfect example of that. If God were to have to deal with the United States of America to get our attention today, what would he have to deal with? Our prosperity, maybe? Something for you to consider. But look at, they saw themselves one way in verse 17, and as we finish verse 17, God saw them in another. And do you not know that you are wretched Miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Encouraging words, Caleb. We don't often hear these things, right? But this is the way God saw that church. This is the way God saw them. He's not trying to be cruel, He's trying to be corrective. The beginning of repentance begins with truth, understanding our true reality who we truly are. But is it possible that God would go to some of the richest churches in America, around the world, and say these words to them? As I said earlier on in our study of the seven churches, I'd much rather be a small church led by the Spirit than a large church led by the flesh. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that there aren't good churches in America. There are, and some of those are large churches. The size doesn't matter. It's the matter of the heart. Now, why does he say this to them? Notice the words. He calls them wretched, meaning that they haven't dealt with their sin before him. Miserable. In their inner being, they're miserable because their sin hasn't been dealt with. They're poor, spiritually poor, because they're storing for themselves treasures here on the earth rather than storing for themselves treasures in heaven. And then he calls them blind. They think they can see properly, but in actuality, they are blind to their spiritual condition. Reminds me of the Pharisees, doesn't it? When Jesus talked about their blindness, the blind leading the blind, how they rebuked one whose sight was returned to him because of the healing of Jesus. And remember what Jesus said in those, awe, those awesome words. He says, I have come into the world to give sight to those who, can, who, who can see, can't see and to take sight from those who say they can. This is the words of our Lord. And then notice... He says, you are naked, for they have not been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, the new robe, the, the new man, the new life, but they stand before God naked in their sins. 
In verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire, meaning storing up for themselves treasures in heaven, that you may truly be rich. And white garments, of course, speaking of the new life in Christ, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that, I, that you may see, the eye salve that I give you. As God removes the blinders from our eyes, that moment we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, and we see everything in a brand new light around us. This was a church that was distant from God. They were a church in name only. I, I was listening to a pastor at a conference one time who was asked about a church that was, uh, well, very much off biblically, having the same name as his church. And they asked him, well, how do you feel about the, the, them uh, taking your name, Grace Church? He says, I have no problem with them taking the word grace. I have a problem with them taking the word church. That was the state of the church of Laodicea. And notice in verse 19, here is why God says what he does. Because he loves them. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. That is correct. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, sometimes God needs to tell us what we need to hear rather than what we want to hear. And sometimes I feel that people shy away from reading God's Word because often, let me say this, in most cases, God's Word will tell us what we need to hear rather than what we want to hear. A true act of love isn't displayed by lying to someone. It isn't displayed by appeasing them through inaccuracy or falsehood. True love is demonstrated by truth. One of the reasons I love God is because I know that He is incapable of lying to me. Not only does He hate the sin of lying, but He also is personally incapable of lying to anyone. Now, we all may agree that lying to one another is wrong. Unfortunately, it's not others that we lie to the most. I discover that the most we, we lie most to ourselves by looking at ourselves in a way that isn't true. And sometimes God needs to remind us of that. And the reason He is saying all that to them is in hopes that they would repent, in hopes that they would change, in hopes that they would return to Him, that they would repent of their sins. Because he loves those in whom he chastens, and he rebukes those in whom he chastens and loves. In verse 20, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him, and he with me. Often we hear this verse used in an evangelistic sense. In the context, it's clear that Jesus is standing on the outside of the church of Laodicea. He's not in the midst of it. He's not working there in the church of Laodicea. Everything that they see happening and occurring seems to be based upon their personal wealth and prosperity. Their self-sufficient, their self-determination, their self-reliance, 
their self-governance. And Jesus stands on the door knocking to come in. My grandmother was one who introduced me to Jesus Christ years ago. Now, she was personally a devout Catholic. And as a little boy, I would sit on the couch with her, and above her couch, she had one of those famous pictures of Jesus knocking on the door. And there was no door handle. The door could only be opened by the, from the inside. And I would ask her, just as a little boy, what all that meant, and she, she would share the gospel with me through it. But it wasn't until later, for my grandfather at that time, too, was a devout Christian. I'm sorry, a devout Catholic. And then he began to read God's Word and started to see that there was inconsistencies between what the Bible said and the Catholic Church said. So late in his life, he became a born-again Christian. And he used to drive down to Moody Church. That's where he would go. He would take my grandmother to, uh, you know, to the Catholic Church, St. Edward's there in Chicago, where she learned about the Lord and how to gamble. She also taught me how to play blackjack and poker. She taught me a lot, my grandmother. <laughs> but she loved the Lord. She did. But my grandfather wanted something deeper and more meaningful. She, and he began to seek and to look. He was a very intelligent man. And he used to go down to Moody. And I remember going down to Moody with him in those days, when, especially during Christmas when it was all lit up inside. I was like, wow. You know, going to the Catholic church with my grandmother and him on Easter one day, there's the, the big chair was in the front of the church. And as I was standing there as a little boy, I was like to my grandmother, I'm like, is that where he sits? She goes, oh yeah, that's, that's where he sits. Now shut up. And then we would kneel and then stand up and then kneel. And they had the little kneelers there and everything. We do, you know, we got our exercise in for the day. And, but leaving, she was showing me off to all of her friends in my little Easter outfit, you know, the tie and the suit and, you know, the little coat with patches on here. It was the 70s. You just, just pray for me. But I was mad as all get out. I was just like, <clears throat> and they're like, oh, isn't he a charming little young man? And my grandma goes, what is wrong with you? Why are you so mad? And I said, Grandma, I was quiet. I kneeled when they said kneel. I stood when they said stood. I sang when they said sang. I waited patiently, and I waited there that whole Easter Sunday, and the Easter bunny never came because <laughs> that's who I was referring to. But it was my grandfather who said these words to me on the bus coming home from Moody, because that was our treat, going on the bus. And he said, Eric, he says, it's not about religion. It's not about you trying to earn God's favor. God loves you. It's all about a relationship with him. And I remember those words so clearly resonating in my heart. And undoubtedly, those were some of the first seeds planted in my life. But God wasn't there in the church of Laodicea to do that. Giving them the opportunity, he then says at the end, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me 
on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Meaning that we can learn from this today. Remember when I began, I held this envelope up and I said, you know, I often wondered if when Shannon goes to the mailbox here at the church and uh, puts the mail on my desk to look at, if I'd ever see one that says Calvary Chapel Cardinal with the return address of Jesus, would I want to open that letter? How does he view our church? Are we the church that has lost our first love? Are we the church that is suffering under great weights of persecution? Are we the faithful church? Are we a church that has fallen into compromise and corruption? How does God see our church? God hasn't given us one letter specifically addressed to our church. He's given us seven letters to compare ourselves by. It would be easy to automatically say, well, that's clear. We're the faithful church of Philadelphia. Well... Let's be careful to make sure that that is true. The reason I'm so concerned about the church of Laodicea is because many scholars hold to a very interesting pattern that develops. And the pattern that develops from the church of Ephesus to the church of Laodicea is various stages that the church experiences throughout the course of its individual history and or collectively throughout church history, meaning that the church of Ephesus is how the church began, you know, and quickly lost their first love, but the church of Laodicea would indicate the condition of the church before the second coming of Jesus Christ. Does the church of America look like a church that is dependent upon the Spirit or dependent upon itself? Do we see the Church of America impacting our community, our world, the way it once did? Do we believe that we're all that, and as my wife would say, all that and a bag of chips? Or do we need to repent before the Lord and return once again to the simplicity of the design of the church in which God has established from the very beginning? These are questions that only God can reveal to us. But why I am concerned today is because the self-reliant church described in the church of Laodicea contradicts the fundamental characteristic of one who would follow Jesus Christ. And I want to end with this this morning by asking you to turn to Mark chapter 8, if you will. Mark chapter 8. And I want to end with Jesus speaking to his disciples and to all that who are around, starting in verse 34. Remember, the church began, I believe, in Acts chapter 2, after Pentecost, the Spirit coming upon them. Please read Acts chapter 2 in its entirety to see how the church began through the evangelism. And then the discipleship of the apostles there in Acts 2.42. But by the time of Laodicea, in their particular place, in their particular society, their prosperity allowed them the self-reliance that took them away from God. In fact, even excommunicated God from their midst. 
But Jesus said something to his disciples that is key. And I believe that if we can understand this basic principle, oh, it's very simple, but it's incredibly profound and very difficult. As I stated, I believe self is the idol of today. We worship self today. But notice what Jesus said to his disciples. And I believe that if we return to this simplicity, we will see once again God working in the midst of the church here in America like never before. In verse 34 of chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, Mark writes, And when he had called the people, he's speaking of Jesus, to himself, with his disciples also. So this is not only spoken to the disciples, but to everyone who was listening. He said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow after me. It would make complete logical sense that the church would begin with the abandonment of self and end with the, you know, the adoption of self once again. To begin our Christian life requires us to die to ourselves, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow after Him. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Now remember, he's not just speaking to the apostles, to the disciples. He's speaking to everyone who is listening. For what will it profit a man? Notice what he says here. If he gains the whole world, I would consider that prosperity, wouldn't you? And loses his own soul, question mark. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's eschatology. And as John Wolverd wrote in his famous writings on the book of Revelation, that he sees a consistency that the church in general, in many ways, would be identified with self rather than the Spirit. I pray that what God began here in our little church, through the Spirit, He would conclude in the Spirit. It's not wrong to be wealthy, but God would have us steward that wealth according to His principles according to His desire, according to His will. But let us never become dependent on prosperity. Let us never adopt prosperity in the abandonment of God's Spirit. For the church of Laodicea had become lukewarm. They had become useless. And if we want to be part of what God is going to do next, then we need to position ourselves in a a useful state, individuals led by the Holy Spirit and God's Word. May I encourage you to take your heart before the Lord this week and ask the Lord, have I lost my first love? 
Have I compromised with the world? Have I corrupted myself? Or am I just dead inside? Or have I allowed the prosperity to take lead and take hold of, what you're, of my life and it now governs me rather than your spirit? In the Old Testament, the worst times in Israel's history is when they experience prosperity. Again, prosperity can be absolutely governed by God. But oftentimes, we allow prosperity to govern us.